What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And returning special guest, Pat McCaffrey. Thank you, my man, for gracing us with your presence again. You know, I'd say I wouldn't miss this for the world, but I'd totally be lying. <laughs> and I would say that that is a very dark and hungry world, because on today's episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast, we're wrapping up our read of Stephen R. Donaldson's The Gap Into Power, A Dark and Hungry God Arises. We had a rather explosive ending to this one, if you will forgive the expression. So, Drew, my man, take it away. Do your thing. Alrighty. So, last week, we left off where Min Donner had been sent down to the headquarters of the governing council for earth and space with a bill of severance that warden Diaz wanted her to give to captain Sixton Vertigus and have him introduce to the council to split the police from the United mining companies. While she was there, a kamikaze bomber tried to kill captain Vertigus, but was unsuccessful. And Min also survived in the aftermath of the bombing. Min returns to UMCPHQ, and Warden Diaz locks everything down, including Godson Frick, the PR director. And when Holt Fastner calls Godson and tells him he better get his butt over to Holt's uh, home office for the United Mining Companies, Godson tries to cover his tracks, but he runs out of time, and a second kamikaze bomber kills him. There is a pile of consternation on board UMCPHQ after that, and uh, it's just piling up because they're still dealing with the PR disaster that was Warden's uh, conference with the governing council. Meanwhile, on Billingate, Angus is in motion. Angus Thermopylae, with the help of Milos Taverner and some very, very cool tech, springs Davies from lockup and discovers in the process that Davies is his son. Knowing that he's been double-crossed by Nick, uh, Angus and Davies and Milos return in stealth to Trumpet. Nick gets locked out of Captain's Fancy and also returns to Trumpet to try to figure out what to do. As they're planning, uh, Angus realizes that Nick has already sold Morn to the Amnion. And he says, well, you know what? I gotta go rescue her. Milos freaks out and in turn, to save himself, goes to the Amnion and is transformed, is given a mutagen. And now the Amnion have Angus's priority codes. Knowing this full well, Angus continues with the rescue plan. Nick helps out, even though he's priming everybody for a double cross. But they succeed. They break into the Amnion uh, sector of Billingate. And just before they get to Morn, Milo's Taverner shows up. A nearly perfectly transformed, mutated Amnion. The only difference is his eyes. He still has his memory, and the Amnion are on the verge of perfecting their mutagen. But when he tries to use Angus's priority codes, another trick, another ace up the sleeve of Warden Diaz, he saw it coming, and Angus has superseded those priority codes with new ones. He is no longer Joshua, but he is Gabriel now. And he succeeds in driving off Milos, but does not get to kill him. But he does rescue Morn. And as they're getting Morn back to Trumpet, Liet Correggio, in command of Captain's Fancy, breaks Nick's orders for the first time to save Nick instead of getting revenge on Source Chatelaine. She basically uh, kamikazes Captain's Fancy into... Uh, the grounded, tranquil hegemony. 
the one of the two Amnion defensives. And that gives the crew of the Trumpet just enough time to get away, to get back to the ship. Angus has enough time to get into Billingate and disable the reactor and set off a chain reaction explosion. And the crew slips away. So. (laughs) What an awesome ending to this book. Oh, boy. It was nice, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay, so style. Yeah, going into style. What I noticed about Donaldson's style, like here specifically, and I, I did talk about this before, um, but it strikes me as more prevalent now than ever. It's his knack for dropping bombshells for the plot and for his characters with complete and utter nonchalance. You know, the the first one that comes to mind was near the beginning of the reading for this week, where Angus has an idle thought about the time when the Amnioni taught him how to edit his ship's data core. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, hang on a second, back up again. Did I just read that? Another is from a point of view that I think we got a point of view from Sora Chatelaine, right? When, where she's mm-hmm. framed for having an apparent immunity drug for the mutagens and she finds that out and she has this idling thought almost of her own that she really needs to, and I quote, convince the Amnioni that she hadn't turned against them, right? Like, yep. all these things are just being dropped, dropped, dropped. There's no real buildup to them. It's just like these little gold nuggets are just left in the wake and you have to like, you spot it and you're like, holy crap, did I really just read that? Even the the revelation that the Amnion supposedly have the immunity drug now. Uh, The Amnion had injected her with mutagens and another word they'd drawn, or another line for the the injection where they'd drawn, all the norepinephrine and dopamine and the immunity had been sucked out of her into those small vials betraying her whole species. You know, like he has a, he has a style with not choosing not to be obnoxious about his style. It's really, really cool. It's really <laughs> subtle and I like it. Yeah. I think that ties into the main style point I have, and that's the pace of this. You know, I've talked before about how this, this series kind of just, it gets going and it never stops. <laughs> it doesn't bother slowing down and, and he's able to pull that off because he has this ability to drop these bombshells smoothly in in the flow of the story mm-hmm. to where events are so crazy you get this this thing and you're like wow ho- holy cow you know that was uh that was ridiculous but you can't stop and and worry about context or background because there are so many more pressing things going on and you just have to trust that eventually we'll get there <laughs> and we'll get those answers about you know, the, these bombshells he's he's feeding to us throughout the uh, climax of this book. The bombshells, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, about the only style point I had was that this is, if you think about it, this is the first time we've had a an action sequence. Yes. So there's been, there's yes. been some action, but it's, the, the drama thus far has been more character-focused rather than uh, explosive, violent. But now we get, we're get we seeing him write this for the first time in in a long, drawn-out fashion. It's, oh, is it awesome. Yeah, yeah. This, this was the kind of ending that I was waiting for for the past two books. Not that the past two books have disappointed me in any way, but this is more up my alley. This is what I was hoping to see, yeah. and it was super <laughs> this, is, for it. this is like what people imagine when they hear science fiction. Yeah. But I'm glad that he didn't feel the need to start doing it right away. We got an appropriate amount of buildup 
with our characters in the universe and the stakes and the drama of it all before he, you know, unleashed matter cannon fire in an enclosed area. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. You know, there, there is so much more urgency in this one, like with, like, I, like with, with the setting, I suppose, with, with the obvious and the imminent destruction of Thanatos Minor just looming over everything. You just know it's coming. The, the casual drops of those big in-universe secrets, you know, the heist-like style of several sequences in this one now. I mean, we have these EVA sequences. We have like so many deaths all in the same instant with the destruction of the Captain's Fancy. It's just, it really was like a much more spectacular climax than I think either of the previous two books had. It was really, really gripping stuff. You know, even like the really shocking turns we had with Mark Vestibule deciding to, you know, tell Milo's Taverner, you know what? We require you. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> right. uh, I love, I did really, really like it. Yeah. I, I mean, I brought it up. I, I think in the second half of forbidden knowledge, maybe last week, um, where I mentioned Rob, I was like, you know, it's basically been all politics so far mm -hmm. and you're still enjoying the books. And, yeah. uh, and, and here now it's not just politics. <laughs> I do like sci-fi politics more than I like fantasy politics. Maybe that's that, that I, I should have brought that up when you'd asked me that the first time. I think that might have something to do with it, but yeah, I mean, although you didn't, you didn't love uh, a desolation called peace. No, you're right. You know what? I take back, the exact amount of words that that took me to say. You're right. I did not like it in Desolation Called Peace. We didn't have anything quite like this, though, at the end of Desolation Called Peace, though, with the destruction no. of a planetoid and several <laughs> fleets of ships. It was uh, really something. Of course, I did really enjoy the end of A Memory Called Empire, for those who want to hear my reaction on that. Listen, episode 21? I want to say it is. Um, yeah, I mean, he went in some excellent passages while we're, while we're still on style here. Just plain gorgeous writing. During one of Angus's uh, EVAs, we have, and I wrote the quote here, the light or contrast between the unnatural human light and the natural inhuman void, which I love that, by the way, uh, gave the landscape its strangeness. Against this black and absolute background, any arc lamp, no matter how intense, was nothing more than a small flare. Human senses insisted that so many millions of tons of concrete with so much fusion generated power so much uh, divided so much evidence of conscious intention should only have been or should have been large enough to mean something the surrounding emptiness disagreed and i've talked about this before with donaldson's uh, his brilliant personification or maybe those actually Paul English Wolf, we were just talking about. Oh, that might be Paul English Wolf with uh, Only Garden on Mars. But either way, it's very mm -hmm. clearly intentional. It's calculated. It's. I think it'd be easy for an author, especially one who finds it effortless, as Donaldson seems to, to throw these all over the place. But he knows when the moment calls for them. He picks and he chooses them with care. And the fact mm. that he is sparse with them, contrasted with how good he is at them, it really adds a lot of weight to these moments of, of lyrical prose, for lack of a better term. I'm not going to say it's as lyrical as Rothfuss or, or what I've seen from Gaiman or especially from what I gather from Gene Wolfe, but it's <laughs> it's more than clever enough to carry us through and add some just great flavor to the actual sentence-by-sentence sentence level stuff. It's just oh, totally. much. And, the, and, and how he plays with it with different characters, like Angus's reaction um, yeah. uh, to, uh, to EVA, uh, lead Correggio's uh, wind. Yes. And, you yes. know, you'll find, you know, if you look closely enough that each of the characters has this little tick. Yeah. Um, that 
it really it lends them a lot of flavor. And the yeah. higher the drama gets, uh, the more it comes out. Yeah, it's like the way Min Donner uh, is anchored by her gun at her side. And when she doesn't have her gun in her holster, she she feels like she's been you know, cut loose. She, she doesn't feel settled. Her hands constantly groping for the yeah. gun in her holster. Like uh, a when she's in these tense moments, including smoking. Yeah. yeah, it always wants to be. Yeah, and him. and Milos with his his uh, cigarettes. Yeah, his nicks. Yeah, yeah his nicks. <laughs> I'm I wonder, done with my I wonder style if he did that on purpose, just as like a silly little pun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you have to wonder, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but speaking of nicks. Are you guys ready to go on to characters yet, or is there anything else style-wise that you wanted to discuss? Uh, I'm, I'm ready to go for characters. Yeah, Pat? Yeah. yeah. yeah same. Okay. So, again, with my amazing segue, speaking of Nick's, um, nothing but a fat middle finger and a shit-eating grin aimed towards this guy. Still, you know, I'm, I'm consistent <laughs> so far, I think. Um, the epic knockout. Chef's kiss. The this this, this rapid eroding... I don't even know if I want to call it eroding because eroding implies a gradual thing. This is just rapid degradation of his reputation, uh, his invincible reputation and his reputation for invincibility. Watching him struggle more and more with that is nothing but pleasure. My only regret is that Angus is lessened you know, in the form of a punch directly to the forehead. Could have been like maybe a little more extensive. <laughs> Grabbing him by the face and just brolying him through like a few of the surrounding walls. That would have been a little more satisfying to the reader. Also, it would have been if that. Angus had anything to say about it, clearly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what we got was good enough. I mean, to hell with Nick Sikorso. He deserves every bit of it. You know, I'm just yeah. I'm worried though. I'm worried that you guys spent so much time telling me I'm gonna hate him more. And I'm like, oh God, what rise to glory does he have yet to achieve just so that he can ruin other people's lives more profoundly than he already is, you know, but I suppose, I suppose in the fullness of time, we will uh, discover the truth. Oh, yeah. yes. I suppose I will be, I will find out by reading. Yes. Give it a, yeah, give it a few more weeks here and then, you know, uh. <laughs> it's easy. I love it. Uh, Nick, gentlemen. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with everything you said. And it's so far for him, it's the natural consequence of everything that's been happening to him. It's just you know, the, the wave is cresting and it's hit it all hitting him harder mm -hmm. than it was. But it's really all, all due to Morn. She started it and yes. we're seeing it conclude. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about Nick in, in the context of, you know, this triad, this character triad that we've been going back to throughout the series and, and that we will continue to, to visit going forward. Uh, and I think here is where we see Nick um, so far most fully in the damsel role where he, he is helpless. Essentially uh, all of his power has been stripped from him. His last remaining bit of power was uh, the faithful crew of Captain's Fancy under Liette's command. And even in the end there, she betrays him. She disobeys his orders. And, uh, and, and so even though he's not a traditional damsel in distress the way, uh, you know, Morn is, um, they, they're both kind of like fighting um, the roles they're being shoved into. And similarly, Angus is fighting. He's... He's uh, become the hero 
here in the end of this book, but he doesn't really want to be the hero, you know? And Nick has become the damsel, but he doesn't want to be the damsel. And uh, and and so the the characters aren't as neatly filling those three roles uh, as they were in the first and second books. Uh huh. Yeah, we, which we started to see earlier in this book as well. Mm -hmm. the, the blurring of the lines. Mm. Yeah. So Angus has gone through a complete rotation now, where he has gone through villain, damsel, and hero, and Nick has gone through. Hero, villain, and damsel now. And Morn, well, Morn, you could make some arguments, has gone through all three. Yeah, depending Angus on your has gone perspective. Villain, damsel, hero, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, yeah, that's what I let off of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so, so now where each of them has, for a brief time, fulfilled each of these roles, you know, Morn going from damsel to hero and even a bit to villain when she's holding the entire crew of captain's fancy hostage um you know and then now she's back to damsel so mm -hmm. it's and and she has been saved the hero has saved the damsel in distress and now it's like okay what's the next step for her angus and nick have gone through the whole cycle what's the next step for them hmm yeah, uh, I still want to see him spaced. That's really my last point. I, I still want to see it happen. And I, I love picturing that image of just like oh, like like dozens and dozens of windows with a bunch of people just flipping the bird as he slowly floats away. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. It's fitting uh, tribute. Yeah. So yeah, that's everything I have about Nick's core. So I'm ready to go into Angus. Do you have anything about else about Nick? Either of you guys? No, not really. Okay. Lots of lot of character work of, on Angus at this part of the series. I am loving it. That reveal for him and and the manner in which Donaldson, you know, through Nick, chose to do it when Angus walks into the holding room or the cell, whatever, and he sees Davies and he just realizes. He just realizes in that moment. And I, I also love the fact that despite his obvious inability in a lot of what he does and his lack of agency in almost anything he does, he's still having serious moments of distinct development. That's a, it's it's really it's a really cool feat I think on Donaldson's mm -hmm. part. There's a line that stood out to me. Uh, what for me was chapter 37 of my ebook. It was one of the Angus chapters when the team was in EVA suits and they're trekking across to the Amnion mm -hmm. sector. And the yep. quote is, "In truth, he didn't know why he wanted to get there so fast." Milo's Taverner was almost certainly waiting for him, and Milo's had his priority codes. Yet he ran without the urging of his data core or the pressure of his own implants. He ran because he was a coward. More than anything else, he needed to arrive at the end of his fear. Yes. I had so, another moment where I just skipped right. I was like, that, yep, skipped right on the next line, and then it clicked. I'm like, wait, I'm going to go back and read that again. It was uh, very, very nicely done, tastefully done. Sure. There's very much a double meaning uh -huh. in in what he's he's doing there. There's the the surface explanation. Um, he's where he's talking about arriving at the end of his fear, referring to getting to the Amnion Quarter and sure. confronting Milo. And it's immediate danger. Yeah, uh -huh. and the uh, his uh, more hidden f terror of EVA. Yeah, which is uh, the deeper, or just the fear that rules him. By a long Perhaps. shot, yeah. Um, the, the the fear that rules him is, uh, 
not 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 personified but exemplified by his fear of EVA. Yeah. Yes. They're inextricably linked in in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I did also last. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was say it, it's a great kind of focus on Angus in the second half of this book, even though he doesn't really get that many points of view. I mean, I'm looking there one, two, three, four, five, six Angus chapters out of the 23 that we had in the second half of this book. And, uh, and yet those, those chapters cover a lot of internal ground for him where we see him going from this uh, thraldom under Milos to exceeding Milos through, uh, you know, Warden's hidden commands to rescue Morn, and then encountering Nick and, and then bringing in Davies and all of these pieces get added on. And each time it fundamentally changes how Angus is reacting to this mission he's been sent on to where we get to the end and he is more than willing, despite his fear and despite his misgivings, he is more than willing to go try to rescue Morn because he has, at this point, tied his self-worth and tied his sanity to Morn's self-worth and Morn's sanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also asked uh, last episode if um, either of you guys who are, who are more religious than I am interpreted anything in Donaldson's decision to name Angus Joshua. And now we have a new name, a new priority code, Gabriel. Once again, a very heavily biblical name, Archangel, Guardian of Israel and her peoples. I mused about that last episode, and I, like, and I was excited about how I'd love to see some sort of redemption arc for a character that I'd already I'd written off as irredeemable, you know. And and I am really stoked to see that this is definitely trending in that direction. I do like it. But so, yeah, Gabriel, what do you guys think? I I didn't, uh, you know. I didn't have much to say about the name Joshua, but that's because the name Joshua was in fact a misdirection the whole time. Gabriel is the real tool that Warden mm-hmm. has crafted. Mm-hmm. And Gabriel is an archangel known for announcing things. And one yes. of the key symbols associated with the archangel Gabriel is a trumpet. Oh, I didn't know that. Makes sense yes. as an announcer. Uh, yeah. It's it's you know it's a it's a staple. That's yeah. awesome. In in art and and in the <laughs> in the religious texts in which he appears. Yeah, That's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I mean I thought it it was really clever, really cleverly done. Mm-hmm. So we kind of had a, a sort of hint about what was going to happen a little bit before it actually did. Yeah, yeah. I brought it up. I think in Forbidden Knowledge, how deliberate the names of the ships in the gap cycle are how bright beauty, the name of Angus's ship, you know, is, is a metaphor for Morn, right? Morn is the bright beauty. And then captain's fancy. That's, that's such a, a, an integral part of who Nick Sicorso is that it's, it's what does he fancy? What does he want? And then, and then we have trumpet. And, yeah. and of course, not not just uh, not just trumpet, but many of the other ships uh, we we right. see near the end of this book. Min Donner has been assigned to take over a UMCP destroyer called Punisher, 
And what was Mindonner introduced as? Warden, Warden Dias' executioner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and 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 the even and the Amnion ships. Punisher. Calm Horizons, Tranquil mm -hmm. Hegemony. It's the it's emblematic of how the Amnion are waging their war. They're not mm -hmm. violent. They're insidious. Yeah. True, but okay, who the hell names their ship? Their spaceship, pardon me. Free lunch. <laughs> Read if you find out. You, oh, okay. you, picked, you picked up on free lunch, huh? Yeah. Oh, I picked up on it. All right. I, I had to we, stop we and stare at it for 40 the seconds to make sure lunch. I was seeing those two words. Um, but you asked why anyone would do it. I'm pretty sure Donaldson had the ship named that just so he could make the funniest joke that occurs in the gap and which is coming okay. up, which is coming up soon. Yeah, no, my question was who the hell names their spaceship free lunch? I need to meet whatever character this is. I did. I mean, I didn't realize, I thought this might've just been a, you know, a little, a little minor detail that wouldn't come back. But if we're going to find out a little more, I want now, especially to know what kind of person, what kind of character is in store that we're going to meet who would name their ship free lunch. It's going to be interesting. Um, oh, it's but about your, uh, but about your uh, trumpet and Gabriel. Yeah. Uh, points um there is more that i want to mention on this but it uh, the significance uh comes in at a later time right okay but it has more to do with gabriel's function as a messenger okay okay <laughs> yeah um, the messenger the messenger of god or dios if you will shoot you guys are just blowing my mind layer <laughs> after layer for the past 10 minutes I, yeah. It's kind of it's it's really nicely done. Oh my god! Very deliberate. Like it's on the nose. It's kind of on the nose, but also not at the same time. It's I, I don't know. Yeah, it's like it's on the nose if you are looking for it. Yeah, but it's, it's, not, easy it's not to not look it. for it. Right. I don't know, and like maybe like Rob said, because because Drew and I are more uh, religiously inclined, that we mm -hmm. might. Uh, you I would know, never have picked up on that, boys. That's attuned, awesome. More attuned to it. I'm glad I asked. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one would have gone. That would have gone right over my head. Uh, <laughs> I've wrapped up my points on Angus for now. He's probably the one I'm most invested in now, and I would never thought I'd be saying that um, previously. But uh, you guys want to go on to? Oh, we, Pat, you just brought up Dios. You guys want to talk about Dios? Yeah, yeah. Good old Borden. Um, yeah, this guy, or, or, man. This freaking guy. I mean. Obviously, I am way more invested in just what the hiffle this guy is up to. I'm, I'm glad to see that that Chekhov's cannon from the end of the you know the last book finally sound off. You know, new override, new priority code, Gabriel. I was expecting it to be something like that, but the result was still so satisfying that even my curmudgeonly ass habit that I've had before, just getting irritated when something is predictable, did not ruin this one at all for me. It landed. I, I'm glad that. Dios is like he's turning out to be exactly what he was being hinted at. That tiny but extremely pivotal to all events thus far line, you know, it has to stop at the end of the very last book and at the end of the very the very end of this one. It's just it's superb. I, I still want to see him wade into the deep end though and get his hands dirty. I want to see him in combat. I'd hate to see it happen in like the last book at the last minute or something because it, at that point it kind of feels like fan servicey to me or whatever. But I, I'm hoping that with like with chaos and order. We get to see him fight off an assassination attempt or something. I want to see some physical badass out of this guy to go with the presence and cunning of badass that he has already. Okay. Yeah, I, I was going to say, one of the things I really like about Warden 
in this half of the uh, this half of the book is that um, even though we have a sense of what he wants, uh, mostly through that scene uh, at the end of Forbidden Knowledge we don't really know what he wants and we don't know why he's doing what he's doing because he keeps throwing off all of these different signals to all of these different people. Min mm-hmm. thinks she knows what he's doing and then he does something that she doesn't expect and she's like, what What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? And then Hashi thinks he knows what Warden is doing but then Warden does stuff that Hashi wasn't expecting and Holt Fastener thinks he knows what Warden is doing but then Warden does things that Hashi doesn't expect. And it's like, Warden is so good at playing the game, playing people off of each other and subverting their expectations while weaving this grand tapestry. Like, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's really, really, like, deft character movement. Not just a character creation, but the way Warden is interacting with other characters and the way he's changing through the series. Like, that's a master level character work. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The air of mystery surrounding yeah. everything that he's doing really pushes pushes the pace of things. Yeah, I mean, and that's that really is the key um, element of the the Earth side of the story right now. Is it's it's a mystery. It's like we have a murder mystery now. Who was behind? Uh, the the Kazi that went after Sixten Vertigus. Who was behind the Kazi that went after Godson Frick? Was it the same person? Was it Holt mm. Faster? Was it the native Earthers? Was it Warden trying to be ruthless once again to make you know to get his way? Like there there are so many twists and turns to that story that I, I just pull me along. But, you know, uh, the most fascinating thing about Warden Dios at this particular stage of the book is, as we're saying, we don't exactly know what he's up to, but we do know that he's willing to lie to people he cares about and someone he doesn't care about, i.e. Holt Fassner, but yeah. he's also extremely dangerous, dangerous person to lie to. And we kind of see it eating him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we get a, a good sense of how... Uh, intensely he's going after his goal. Yeah. yeah. And what he's willing to sacrifice. Exactly. That, yeah, it's a good way to put it. Because um, he has certainly talked a lot about sacrifice. And, and we've seen, especially in his scenes with men, uh, like some really touching moments, to be honest. Uh, you can see that he cares for her and it hurts him to hurt her. But he does it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see, Warden Dios, anything else I have? Oh, not yet, but I'm really expecting that I'm going to have a lot more to say about him in the future. Um, I'm ready to go on to Mourner Davies. Anything else about uh, Warden Dios? Uh, uh, I don't. Not yet. Not about yet. Warden, but I like that some answer. of his, his satellite characters, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about Hashi Hashi and Min real quick before we would go to Morning Davies. Okay. Um because I don't have a ton, but but I do have a couple of points. Uh with Hashi, uh 
I totally forgot that we had this ancillary documentation from his journal where he's basically gushing about Warden Diaz and like, and, and how he thinks he knows what Warden is doing and why he is so enamored of this man. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's one of those clever character things that Donaldson does where he takes what's essentially an info dump, but he uses it to not only inform the character of Warden Dios, but inform the character of Hashi Lebel. And here, especially, we're getting a much more complicated version of Hashi Lebel than we got in Forbidden Knowledge, where he yes. just seemed like a sadistic, mad scientist. Exactly. Like happy to torture Angus. And now here we see that he's he's not necessarily sadistic. He's definitely a man with no scruples. Uh, he's he's not exactly a morally upright person, but he he has greater depth to him. And Donaldson shows us that depth by having Hashi remark on Warden. You mm-hmm. know? No, you're right. It was well done. And uh, this was the book that I started to sit back and say, okay, there's something more going on with this character mm-hmm. than I had suspected. Yeah. You get, you get a, an odd sort of synergy in character development when you're using one character to describe another, because you're not just adding information from one character and about another character, but when you're viewing that character through the filter of char- of the first character, you're mm. getting another layer that, that it takes a little, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of appreciation. It, the doing that with ancillary documentation was a good choice. I feel like I don't know where I would have tried to fit it in elsewise in the in the story. So the ancillary documentation once again has done exactly what it's meant to do, and so I fi- and I find it deft. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have not had a point of view from Hashi. No, I don't, no. Apart from the the sort of yeah. odd uh diary entry right yeah uh no we have not had a hashi point of view okay yeah when that starts to happen when that starts to happen the character gets even more complex yes what we got here is a is a a preview Mm -hmm. i'll just add i love the kind of language he uses when he's talking when he's writing when he's thinking it's just it does it for me and i can't exactly say why you know, it's something something with the archaic words. Yeah, he writes. Um, this is a private, you know, work for him. This is something he wrote for himself, and yet he writes with a an authoritative voice. Mm. He is so confident in himself and and in his own capabilities, not only as like a scientist, whoever, but his own capabilities of um, judgment of other people's character that he's writing a journal entry that reads like an academic essay. Mm-hmm. He, he establishes questions and then answers the questions. He breaks down the evidence. Like you can see his mind working the way a scientist's mind would work that, that he says, all right, here's, that. here's this phenomenon that I've observed Here's the evidence. Here's my hypothesis. Let's see if I can work through this and come to a conclusion. He's basically using the scientific method in his own journal entries. Right. And that's how he works all the time. Yeah. Which is one of his greatest strengths, but will also turn out to be one of his weaknesses. Yeah. 
Ominous. Okay. But more on that later. More on um, that later. Min, <laughs> Min on um, the other hand, yeah, Min. continued to confuse me in this book. I And I, I began it and ended it still completely unsure about how I feel about the character. She like something up. about her. She comes off a little bit. want to dislike her from the start. Petulant child in a way. And I can't ex- really justify that because i understand that she's got a lot more adult problems and she's justified mm-hmm. in a lot of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> but in the, the way in which she she reacts to it like like warden dios is just her her meddling father that's like she loves him to death but he's she 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 she, she wants to protect him and she's having difficulty with that i think i don't know um, some of Angus's criticisms about the cops in general can actually be applied to Min Donner, and they like they work like uh, the uh, overly authoritarian, overbearing nature of what they do. Invasive, yeah, okay, yeah. And she just takes that power and authority for granted. Yeah, but when Angus point it points out a lot of its illegitimacy in everything that he does. Yeah, Min is an exercise in contradictions because what she represents is a corrupt, essentially illegitimate authority, but she herself acts legitimately and acts with the correct moral code. You know, she's out here truly trying to serve and protect the people and being a representation of the police that are supposed to be serving and protecting the people all the while struggling with the fact that the establishment behind her does not conform to her moral, you know, code, basically. Right. And she doesn't always either. Sometimes, <laughs> but rarely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and mostly when she doesn't, it's because she has been driven there by Warden. Because yeah. she trusts him. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. Which... May not yeah. always be a good thing. <laughs> Trusting a guy who's willing to to uh, do some pretty horrible things hmm. uh, yeah, to get what he wants. Is he, a, so. he's a, is he particularly ends justify the means kind of guy? I think he is, and that's a little off-putting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is off-putting. Well, it is it, off-putting. But... And I think he's aware of it. Oh, yeah, he's sure. aware yeah. that he's what he's doing is not necessarily morally right. But that he is but this has working to towards something that he believes yeah. is a morally right goal. Yeah. And I think, he, yeah, he would say the ends do not justify the means, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and whereas Hashi would say the ends justify the means. And Min would yeah. say the ends absolutely do not justify the means. Right. If the you question know. ever occurred to Hashi. <laughs> he might be yeah, confused. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair, fair play. <laughs> Yeah, um, maybe even yeah, add another shade in there where Hashi is beyond that sort of moral conundrum. He's Godson still... is the ends justify the means. Uh, a warden is the ends don't justify the means, but I'm going to do it anyway. And Min is the ends absolutely do not justify the means. <laughs> oh, one one tiny little point about Hashi before I before mm-hmm. I finish with him. Uh, him during the video conference uh, was really great. You you see. Like the layer of duplicity, yes, he has established, and he just plays the role really, really so well. Like it never occurs to any of the members 
to doubt what he's saying in the slightest. Uh huh. And he yeah. just he has the meeting out of his hand pretty much. Yeah, and Hashi, yeah, Hashi's like he's the guy. He's so preoccupied with whether or not he could to think about whether or not he should. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly him. I think. But hey, I don't know very well yet. He's probably the character that I'm waiting for most of the information on. Um, yeah, I'm ready to go into Morn Davies. What about you guys? Yes. Start Davies. Get a little more out of Davies. Didn't. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm. I was just a little disappointed that we didn't get to see some more out of Davies in terms of like page time and like maybe some more of those vital tasks because I did like seeing him put Morn's training to use in assisting with like the running of a ship at times and the, the firearms training, you know, he's, he's more than just a strategic package sort of plot device. Now um, I wasn't expecting that. And I, I didn't realize that if he had, I'd probably been really disappointed probably <laughs> if I hadn't realized, but like I enjoyed where Donaldson took him. I want to see that trend continue in that direction, you know, picking up more responsibility, fighting back even more capably. I, wasn't ready for it, but pleasantly surprised by it. And a little disappointed in myself for not being ready for it, because it seems a lot of it, but uh, yeah. I like where it's going. I just want to see more of it. Yeah. yeah he's still kind of warming up, even at this phase. He's getting his legs underneath him. You know, he's all of what? Like a week old? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he thinks he's in his early 20s. How old is Morn? Uh, we're led to believe, I don't think it's ever mentioned specifically, but we are to infer that she's in her early 20s. Yeah, I think, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. like 21 to 24 somewhere. I, I want to say 23, but I don't know why. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, with, with Davies, what I really like about him in this part of the book is how we get um, a good kind of blending of the line between the Morn identity inside him and the physical reality of Davies, where he has the training and memory of an adult, a young adult, but an adult, and the physical body and hormones of a teenager. And so he has these moments of really adult interaction and then moments of genuinely juvenile um you know reactions to events where he almost is pouting or or he's petulant about something or you know he he has these distinctly teenager yeah. reactions he, he lacks confidence and then he's able in other circumstances to flip that switch and act like a fully grown adult with all the confidence and training of a an official cop mm -hmm. yeah a, a devoted so. cop yeah hmm. um, um and, but as rob is kind of saying he he and morn don't really have much of a part to play in the latter half of this book it really is just angus and nick's show mm -hmm. yeah yeah they were still central to it but they they weren't very involved in, in the struggle so much uh, davy's obviously a lot more than morn was um but yeah, I mean, I still I, I want to see him become bigger and better, and I fully and know he has it in him because I've seen what Morn is capable of. So, yeah, stoked to see where it goes. And you know, you guys want to go into Morn? Yes. wasn't sure uh, wasn't sure what to say about Morn. I, I'm definitely glad that she's back with the gang. So you know, such as it is, the gang. Um, 
it just sucks to know how much she continued to suffer under the Amnione. You know, if they finally got mm-hmm. their hands on her, finally got their hands on her. Uh, but they definitely paid the price for that. I mean, how many Amnione were, were killed in the second half of this? You know, um, there are others I would like to see begin paying for some of their monstrosity towards Morn besides the Amnione. But uh, I don't want to see her turn into nothing but a vehicle of gratification for the reader when they all the all the characters who oppose her get what you know get what they deserve i expect donaldson donaldson still has plans for more in in bringing this the whole gap cycle to an end i should i should say that's what i hope you know uh, i don't expect it i hope it um but that's not really a prediction yet i'm not going to make that official prediction Mm -hmm. i I, I still think she has an important part to play i hope she does yeah so uh, one of the things that stands out to me with morn at this point is how just broken her psyche is how warped her outlook has become due to the abuses heaped upon her Mm -hmm. and yet retaining this iron kind of core to where i mean essentially she was brainwashed by angus uh we we saw it by the end of the real story and and through forbidden knowledge how she got addicted to the zone implant and she started believing angus and, and, you know, his torture of her, basically, where he got her to view the death of her family as her fault. That this is something, you know, that was distinctly her fault. And then, because she was such a monster, he had to give her the zone implant, you know? And then he reiterates it uh, in in this book, even. there's There's one quote. Uh, and, and this is what I was kind of tying back to earlier when I said Angus has developed to the point now where he has tied his sanity to Morn's sanity and his sense of kind of self-worth to Morn's sense of self-worth. And, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about how she has been captured, you know, and he says, um, an unfamiliar pang like pity twisted Angus's heart as he felt the pressure of his son's crisis. He seemed to know what was happening inside the boys if he'd learned it from Morn. Davies was remembering the absolute authority of gap sickness, the command to commit destruction, remembering the wholesale slaughter of his family. But it was something which hadn't happened to him, a crime as well as a sickness in which he had no part, and he hadn't lived through the consequences. Yet Morn Highland, who owned those memories, had taken it better than this. She'd faced the same utter and irreparable horror and had come back fighting. Yes, I remember this. In a sense, she'd forced Angus to give her his own implant. Without it, she would have found some way to kill him, especially if that meant killing herself at the same time. Her son was being broken by things which she had already survived. The layers of this, this passage... Is, is says so much about Angus, about Davies, and about Morn. But I think Morn, once again, is is kind of that fulcrum. She's she's the point around which everything else pivots here. Mm-hmm. Angus is undergoing a change based on what he has seen of Morn. And he is in turn ascribing Morn's experiences and attitude and willpower to Davies. And what it what it ultimately breaks down to is that Angus realizes Davies is being broken by this because he has Morn's memories, 
but he has Angus's genes, and Angus is not as strong as Morn. Yeah, yeah, I think Angus that was the following line, have, right? Uh, a little further down, the next one is uh, Angus's son, another baby for the crib. His part in Davies had made the boy weaker right. than his mother. Yeah, yeah, and so Morn, Morn is this like shining emblem of Angus's shame, but also Angus's hope. Yeah. So, yeah. Layered like an onion, this is. I do. I do appreciate <laughs> it. Um, for uh, uh, the only other thing I have to add about her is that when she's rescued, you know, she's essentially almost comatose. She's catatonic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and but the only thing that brings her out of it is Davies. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That was an interesting thing. Yeah, it's important to note that while Morn became important in the story because she was a cop and she views herself as a cop still, ultimately her motivations have been not to save humanity, but to save her son. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like her role as a mother Mm -hmm. is tremendously important. And that's not something you see in fiction uh, these days. No, it's not. And in fact, uh, there was a, yeah, Twitter fan poll uh, for mother's day. Um, Fantology books on Twitter does these, um, uh, yeah, every few weeks, usually you know once or twice a month, and uh, and in May they did one that was like you know I submit your top three science fiction fantasy mothers, and of course I was the only one who submitted Morn because I'm I guarantee I'm the only one who has read these books who participated in that uh, that poll, but uh, but she is a, a tremendous mother figure. Um. And I won't tell you guys who won because it'll just annoy you. Uh, <laughs> she's not. She's not even an actual mother. So. Uh, uh, oh. No, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna torture you. You know what? I figured it out. You yeah. don't have to say. I yeah, know who yeah, you're okay. talking about. Um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it's it is important to see the shift in Morn's character from cop to mother as her central identifying characteristic, and I think it's also notable that around that time. When she shifted from being a cop to a mother, Min Donner was introduced as a main point of view character who can step into that cop POV mm-hmm. role. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know if I have any more on Morn. Um, other than, you know, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, Angus's description of her when he sees her and, and he's like she she looks like she's aged a hundred years, her eyes are sunken, she's emaciated, clumps of her hair have fallen, you know, has fallen out. Like she she started this series as a beautiful young woman in in the like peak of of her, you know, her physical prime, you know. Uh and and it's only been less than a year and she's a wreck now a physical wreck yeah she's uh she's more highland um yep 
I'm ready to go into miscellaneous and predictions. How about you guys? Any other mm. characters you want to discuss? No, I'm good on characters. Liet. Oh, oh. Liet and the wind and this lunatic woman. Yes. It was I don't have much to say about her, but I'm really glad we got points of view because it was a really different perspective. It yes. was a good way to show us how Nick got where he did. To, to see him through the eyes of somebody who still sees him as the unbeatable Nick Sicorso, who still believes in him. Mm. Yeah. And at the same time showing us, you have to be crazy to still believe in him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did appreciate the irony that it was her loyalty that was his, the undoing of his plans. Yep. But still was unquestionably like from, from like, let's say a moral standpoint, the, the right thing to do for someone you care about. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and yet Nick sees it as a betrayal. Yeah. And, and because, yeah, which is just, uh, he's so, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> how his, his, his pride, his arrogance has led to someone else needing to make the decision between obeying him or saving his life. And the, the balance owing is, is charged with the lives of, of others. Uh, those that trusted him, you know, it's just, it's a receipt of arrogance is what it is and it uh i cannot wait for it to be fucking paid of course i suppose you wouldn't get a receipt unless it was you know what i mean the analogy's there somewhere find it <laughs> you have the pieces put it together yourself i'm not gonna hold your hand anyway um i appreciate it thank you guys um i have faith in our listeners they can do that so miscellaneous um i really only have one point i actually have i had i have two but it's it's just one name the second one. First one i learned a new word Blandishment had never heard that one either. A flattering or pleasing or pleasing statement or action used to persuade someone gently to do something. I, I could have sworn that was used in the Wheel of Time. It may have I been, it, and I just yeah, took it yeah. for in context. Like I'm just gonna assume when I know what this means. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm paying closer attention to this kind of thing now, especially because for some reason in this series, this is a series where I'm having a lot more new words presented that I hadn't known before. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a hallmark of Stephen R. Donaldson. Yeah. Um, my second was, who the hell names their spaceship free lunch? We got that already. Um, <laughs> last one, Norna Fastener. What what was the, was this, was she just as, as, as a tool to to exhibit the cruelty and selfishness of Holt Fastener right from the get-go? Like, she literally never showed up anywhere else. We are not done with Norna Fastener. Okay. That's all I needed to know, and I'm happy now. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Yeah, um, we are definitely not done with Norna Fastener. Good, okay. Right. I was waiting for her to show up again anywhere, and she never did. I was like, okay, this is, okay. That will be enjoyable when we finally get to discuss her yeah. in detail. Your okay. miles may vary, vary on the uh, enjoyable factor. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, good. The good. conversation will be enjoyable. The subject yeah, matter sure. will not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, miscellaneous, gentlemen. Any other miscellaneous points? You know, I don't actually have any miscellaneous points. Uh, who, who else is a huge, huge fan of Mika Vasashk? Oh point? my god, I cannot believe I forgot to write about her. She's wonderful. I said it in the first, well not the first episode, we didn't have her yet, but in our first episode of Forbidden, uh, Forbidden Knowledge, I, I, I love Mika, she's awesome. She's got the little brother, I have a little brother that I would have killed for, run into a bullet for, everything, you know. I, I I I even level with her on an emotional level, and just she just seems like a, a take no bull 
tough woman kind of thing that I really like. It's just she's she's mm-hmm. Mika Visage. She's awesome. You know, I'm glad I'm glad that you like her, Rob. But I I have trouble feeling anything other than ambivalence. Yeah, really. Yeah, eh, I, I I think like I have uh, the, my emotional energy is kind of it's all taken up with everyone else sure yeah sure you're at you're at emotional saturation or invested like investment saturation it's like, okay. yeah yeah that makes sense that makes sense i've had that uh, i've definitely had that before and then rob i i want to get your opinion now <clears throat> on yep. vector shaheed oh i i don't really know what to think about like he was how how vital really was he in the end there? He he was he was with Davies in that that one little uh, flare that went up and cut communications and everything, right? That was Vector. That wasn't Sib with him, was it? That was Vector. That was Vector. Yeah. The the the, the fact that you're asking me specifically about some a character that I didn't note really or find noteworthy at all is well, making me sus. I I was just curious because when we first met him in Forbidden Knowledge, you were very suspicious of him. Oh, because of his and, attitude, right, right, right. Yeah, and then, uh, and then I asked you again. I think at the end of Forbidden Knowledge, and you were still kind of, um, you didn't trust him. Yeah, I guess he just and wasn't then, prevailing enough for me to yeah. continue or even remember that I had yeah, said. So I was going to say, I feel like since we met him, he he's not a saint, but he has mostly been a kind-hearted person. Yeah, oh, I did like. So go ahead. No, I just said mostly. Oh, mostly, yeah. yeah. Um, like he's he's a kind of like a papa bear kind of um he he takes people under his wing he took morn under his wing in his own way he took orn under his wing he took uh pup yeah or he took zero under his wing like he's he's the one who always seems to show up with food and coffee when people really need he's, comfort he's the glue like, that holds the group together man yeah yeah so yeah yeah um Oh, what was I going to say? Yeah, I guess he just didn't really take center stage enough for me to even continue with that opinion. I kind of actually forgot that I'd had that opinion. I did really appreciate that moment he had with Moore near the end. Again, I'm assuming this is uh, this is Vector uh, Shahid. He, when yes. he was apologizing to Moore and, and about his mm-hmm. role and, you know, having struck her, you know, in the events of uh, the end of the previous book and how he's reflecting on on it as, as you know, in, in relation to him as a character and his character and his moral ground. I, I like that he's still showing signs of being sincere as well. I think that's the most important thing about Victor. He is sincere. Yes. That is a good way to describe him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I think that's the end of my miscellaneous points. Are we ready to go into our favorite scenes, gentlemen? I think we are. Indeed. Uh, would you guys like to kick it off? Yeah, Rob. Okay. Uh, I'm a, okay. So there's one that I'm pretty sure that we're all going to share, but it's, I'm not going to say it yet. It'll be my second. So when you guys can steal it from me, if you'd like for your third, my third, um, Angus, uh, seeing Davies for the first time and recognizing him for who and what he is a uh, big moment for Angus that I almost didn't realize was coming until it was too late. Having known for quite a while, by then that Angus was leading the rescue operation, a uh, nice little quiet moment of just intimate drama in the midst of this total catastrophe that is his uh actually really that one went smoothly it was morns that went um disastrously <laughs> so i won't say i won't call that a, a catastrophe that it was still a nice little moment of drama that I, I i didn't realize was coming until he was opening a door and then i went oh wait a second yeah, yeah. it was good snuck yeah, up on me that uh, one. Oh yeah by the way <laughs> that's a good pick honestly i wrestled with it uh that one ended up being an honorable mention for cool, me but cool. i 
I seriously considered that same scene for my third favorite. Um, uh, uh, Pat, you're, sort you're of third? sort of piggybacking on Rob, it takes place a little bit later on Cap on uh, Trumpet rather when Angus and Davies start working together for the first time. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Really, really liked that. Um, nice. You know, there's it, it mostly because Davies doesn't fully remember exactly what Angus has done. Right. But I don't know. There was just a great synergy there between the characters. And yeah, Donaldson does a good yeah. job of showing us how broken this very messed up family is. <laughs> I mean, it's to the point where it almost seems wrong to call them a family, right? Like, but we have right. a mother, a father, and a son yeah. involved here. And, and, uh, and so there's this fundamental brokenness, this unsettling reality to how the family began. It, it began in evil. Yeah. But we see these broken people trying to work good out of their evil circumstances. Yeah. Speaking and of, I really like that. Yeah, speaking on them as a family, I'm just struggling now with the with the idea of that really awkward Christmas card. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that'd be that'd be horrifying <laughs> something for yeah, danny yeah. to sketch though maybe for a thumbnail no i'm just kidding i'm totally joking oh, about that <laughs> totally kidding i jest but uh yeah okay uh okay. third favorite scene drew wait yeah transcript drew. of a commissioning address delivered by warden diaz to cadets of the united mining company's ah. police academy on the occasion of their first assignment i love this there's there are layers of literary themes woven into it. There's dramatic irony in that uh, Warden is giving this inspirational speech about duty and honor and, and all of this while he is operating with the full knowledge that he's explicitly breaking all of these rules he's telling the cadets to follow there's humor in it in the uh you know the jokes that he cracks throughout it some of them are only funny because they're so painfully awkward you know the canned <laughs> laughter sort of thing in in like i don't know four pages stephen r donaldson packs so much just literariness into Literariness, it. Drew, I, I don't know how to describe it. Like it's, uh, it's just genius writing. I love it. <laughs> no, that was a great scene. Yeah, fully agree. Fully agree. I'd forgotten about that one entirely. Actually, that may have actually made it to a, an honorable mention if I had remembered it. So, okay. Uh, second favorite. We're going on now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you guys didn't take this one yet because this one has to show up in all three of ours. Uh, Nick's, of course, so getting Angus's piston of a fist directly to the forehead. <laughs> Love it. The way his nice boneless choice. crumple to the deck is described, just chef's kiss once again. That's something I would want to like, just rewind again and again, slow it down, popcorn, plenty of caffeine so I could stay up all night and just watching it. <laughs> I'd be the embodiment of that Aziz and sorry meme from 
Parks and Rec when he's just like, I've been looking at it for five hours now. That would be me <laughs> watching this on slow motion instant replay. I would love yeah. it. No, actually, it it doesn't make my list, but it is a great honorable mention. Yeah, it, it is not on my list either. Sweet. Okay. All right. I loved it a little mm. more than you guys did. I, I gotta say, is, I mean, I uh, said I wanted, to, I oh. said I wanted to fight Nick Sacorso. I said a few times. Now I'm living vicariously through Angus, which is a really hey, disturbing sentence now in <laughs> in hindsight. Right. And in, in, in you know, Pat and I were uh, chatting a little earlier today about how difficult it is to pick favorite scenes because. Basically, the entire last third of this book is just yeah. one massive scene, <laughs> and it's hard to pick one or two little things out of points. this incredible exactly. sequence. Yeah. Like, yeah. So that's my second favorite, gentlemen. Pat. Nice. Um, my second favorite is the uh, address to the council ah. uh, by the directors of the UMCP. Oh, I hated that one. What? Yeah. Politics, man. Scene? Politics. We've been oh. over this. I can't. I can't oh, dude, it. But dude. it's so good. It's not, oh, you're killing it's so it. Good. It, was like, it was like it was like 71 pages in my ebook, which is obviously not going to be 71 pages in, in hard copy. But it was the longest chapter in the book too, wasn't it? I think it was a really long chapter, very long chapter, and I couldn't but it get was enough. So of it. good. It's like an hour on audio, on audiobook, and I'm like, oh, why couldn't it be two? <laughs> <laughs> oh god i love that and it has nothing to do with the politics is why i like it. i love it how we can all three characters just vibe so much for 99.8 percent of this episode but on this one thing it's like no i'm just oh god on that one little detail i just see that's what makes having different points of view makes fire having. and fire is good all right yes sir uh, drew my Treat second us. favorite Angus fires a matter can inside. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those stupid fun ones. I love it. It's just so awesome. You you can't not love that. Like once you once you like learn what matter cannon are, yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, dude's firing this inside a hallway. <laughs> yep. And it, isn't there one point where they can feel the vibration? More somebody remarks they can feel the vibration in their feet. And they're like, what uh, was yeah. that? Like, From like. Oh. Like eleven floors up, like, yeah. I think sounds cool. Just a oh, minor yeah. cataclysm. Yeah. Yep. Localized, uh, a, a, contained. Uh, what What was it like? Uh, I'm trying to remember how they described it. Um, as like, like atoms are trying to like displace each other from space. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it causes a like a. A literal like nuclear impossibility to happen and then there's a violent explosion in reaction to it like, <laughs> oh yeah it's good stuff it's good oh, stuff right it's great. The, again that meme is like the guy sitting on the bench like that's good shit right there it's good stuff i like it <laughs> all right rob what's your favorite scene? my favorite scene and i'm glad you guys didn't take this one because this one really resonated with me on an emotional level uh, Angus's moment of complete emotional destruction uh, upon seeing Morn in her emaciated state and yet still more afraid of Angus himself. I mean, you can see so clearly in this moment that despite his monumentally twisted vision of it, he kind of loves her, or at least he what he feels yeah. is the, close, the, the closest thing to love that he's capable of. And I, I quoted here, when he saw the horror in her gaze, the presumption of more harm, his own eyes went blind with tears. 
Dismantled like bright beauty, his data core ruled him in every other way, but it placed no restrictions on weeping. Apparently, Leewall or Dios had never considered the possibility that he might be capable of grief. But like bright beauty, Morn had been his. She'd served him utterly. Her beauty and her humiliation had belonged to him. Under his control, she'd given him and she'd given to him and done more for him. Uh, or done for him anything he could name that made her precious. And she'd saved his life. Until Hashi Leibwal and Zone Implants ripped it from him, he'd kept his bargain with her. The sight of what that bargain had cost her sent tears as hot as blood scalding down his cheeks. On a literal level, Nick had done this to her, but the underlying truth was that Angus himself had caused it all. It was on his head. And after that, mm-hmm. his begging, you know, mourn, please say something, answer me. That ripped my heart. It was really powerful stuff. Very heavy stuff. Yeah. yeah the whole ending part of this book is, is just next level. Yeah. So my favorite scene was that. Speaking of the ending of this book and next level things, my favorite part really of that whole sequence was the culmination in the Gabriel reveal With and the, the, uh, the defeat of, of Milos. The temporary defeat. He's still at large. That son of a bitch. And yet a defeat nonetheless. Yes. War might go on, but the battle was won and that was a very satisfying way to end uh, what we had been uh, enduring. Well, on, on the subject of Milos, I have to say, I learned something about him during Drew's recap that I didn't realize at the time when I was reading the, the book. Um, when the, the, she was describing, or Angus was describing the color of his eyes being the only thing that was different, what I read in that moment was, oh, so it's immediately after the injection and the mutagens are just starting their work. Okay, so if we had a little... Technical difficulty, but we're back. A week later? Yeah, uh, nearly a week later. Uh, shh, but shh, but we, we just have a, a little more to discuss. Um, uh, Rob, you were just talking about how you didn't realize that uh, Milos uh, had been, like, mutated fully and, like, the only change was his eyes. Right, I thought he had just started. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that pretty much brings us to um, to my favorite scene, which will uh, wrap up our favorite scenes. And and mine is one that's already been discussed. It is the press conference. Oh. It is it Ooh, is Warden oh, Diaz really? and uh, and and everything going on behind the scenes at UMCPHQ and uh, and just how much is laid out, uh, how much future conflict is set up in that one scene. So you have context. That's perhaps why you enjoyed that one a little more than I did. Uh, Maybe I on mean, the reread, Rob. Eh? Yeah, I'll have to yeah, reread that one a lot closer after we finish this. And it's not its not all because of the context. I mean, I, I really think there's awesome character work there with uh-huh. the, the little bits and pieces of how Hashi and Min and Godson are all reacting to Warden and and then, you know, the seeing all of these... Uh, all these new characters on the governing council, um, you know, Maxim, uh, Sigurd Carson, you know, uh, Lem, that eternal uh, conciliator. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, color me surprised, because, I I mean, I I had it lower down on my list, and I just, 
I, I didn't envision that scene in my own head as as a head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a hard time um, ordering my favorite scenes and really picking favorite scenes in general. I just, mm. the whole book is great. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, it, this is one where I'm not like super set on like, oh yeah, this is absolutely the best scene in the book. Um, but but after this read through, I enjoyed it the most, I think. Nice. Very interesting. Nice. Yeah, yeah I, I will finish off by saying that I did enjoy the book rather a lot. Like, I really did. Oh my gosh, so many, so many technical difficulties. Um, yeah, like it. But yeah, yeah. So you're saying you did enjoy the book? I did enjoy the book. I really did enjoy the book, um, more so than the real story, and more so than Forbidden Knowledge. I was, I mean, obviously, I was just getting my feet underneath me there. I was still getting used to Donaldson's style. I am still getting used to Donaldson's style, but I found this one to be a more no, it was just more of what I expected out of a sci-fi book. That's what that, I suppose that's what I'll say. I mean, the, the the darkness was there, the graphic detail was there. wasn't too shocking anymore. I was I'm starting to get used to it. But overall, as one cohesive whole, I mean, I I, I definitely found this one uh, the the most fun to read. I'll give the, I'll say this was a very good book. I won't call it incredible until I read it a few more times. Maybe I will. But for now, I'm already coming out of it after one read as very good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, well, I think that brings us to the final draft then. Uh, yeah. Rob, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, I'll kick us off because once again, I'm letting everybody down except for my organs and I'm just drinking water. <laughs> Straight up yeah. Dasani water. You know, some good old H2O. I've been going like, oh, three months, three and a half months without getting drunk. <laughs> and so I feel pretty good. But water is all I need to carry me through these ones. If it was a, a worse book, say if it was <clears throat> Jin Lions, I may have been... Uh, <laughs> required to drink to get through it but uh water is all i need actually it's probably the best that water was all i was drinking for this one considering some of what i was reading (laughs) yeah yeah uh pat what about you i i have been enjoying um a lovely sour ale uh, from wiley roots brewing company which drew and lauren were half good enough to donate to the cause called slush an yeah. unappetizing name for a very appetizing beer. <laughs> I already don't like, like sours. Slush. Oh no, but this one, this one is. Yeah, it's uh, really, which, it's really smooth. It's not abrasive at all. Uh, which that, fruits uh, are are in that one, Pat? This one is the strawberry lemon lime. Okay, yeah, yeah. But they're not a mm-hmm. they're not abrasive, which is the trick to mm-hmm. sours. I do like all three of those. Yeah, Same. yeah. It's it's basically like a, a tart strawberry lemonade, mm-hmm. only a beer. <laughs> okay, that still tastes like a beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm, they sell those to men. <laughs> <laughs> they do now. <laughs> I had to get you back after that one a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, I stand to shade. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, Love you bud. Uh, yeah, so what I was drinking was an Imperial Milk Stout from Burial Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. An 11% beast of a beer, which uh, I thought was appropriate for yeah. a, a, a pretty heavy beast of a book. And and this one, uh, it was uh, adjuncted with coffee and cinnamon. And I gotta say, the, the cinnamon definitely came through. It wasn't overdone, but it was very present which isn't always my favorite thing in the world but it was it was still pretty good 
Um, but this one, this one just kind of goes goes out to all all the revelations at the end of the book, especially Gabriel. And this beer is called mm. Who Knew. Uh-huh. Who knew? <laughs> I like yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. Who knew Quite. what Warden was up to all this time? Yeah. Well, we did because we knew, but... <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I haven't figured this guy out other, other than those who've already read the series. <laughs> yeah. Still working on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that uh, that brings us to the end of our episode, the end of our coverage of A Dark and Hungry God Arises. And this has been episode 122 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up... Uh, we are going to be taking a, a little break once again from the Gap Cycle to cover a Patreon-recommended book, Ready Player One. And uh, we're going to be doing that in, in one go. It's a shorter book, pretty fast. Uh, so we'll just have one episode. And then after that, we'll we'll get back to the to the chaos and order. Yeah, we have a returning special guest coming on for the next one as well. Somebody we who's do. been featured once, no, sorry, twice before uh-huh. for one book. Yeah, and, and on that topic, uh, he was able to recommend Ready Player One because he's a, a patron uh, of Inking Out Loud, and you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud to get a whole bunch of bonus content and perks. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Patrick McCaffrey. Keeping it real. Thanks real for coming down, Pat. Dumb. Yeah, Yeah. so thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.